Jesus, we thank you for your word, the book of Revelation, that you are teaching us to not only prepare for end times, but you're, pre you're teaching us to prepare for today and how to live today. Lord, we ask you to teach us this morning. Open the eyes of our understanding. Help us to be accurate, balanced, and clear in all that we say and all that we think and most importantly, in all that we do. Lord, we ask that you this morning will be glorified in our church and in our lives. And Lord, may we, your people, be edified by this assembly and by your presence. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. So a few things we learned last week. Last week, we studied the church of, um, we, we, last week we studied chapters four and five in Revelation, and we learned some things about the throne room and the great rejoicing and celebration that will take place in heaven. We learned about the 24 elders, the seven spirits of God, the sea of glass, the four living creatures, six wings full of eyes, the lion, the calf, the man, the eagle, the book with seven seals. We talked about those things and we, we are, we were comfortable with the fact that there will be great rejoicing in heaven. And I think we should start by just being great rejoicers and yes. worshipers right here on earth. Yes. Let's just be grateful. There's so much to complain about. The world is so divisive and so full of war and hatred and evil. There's so many things that divide us. Uh, it's just, you know, let's, let's look for things that bring us together. Let's look for things that we have in common. Let's look for ways to unite and to unify in our praise and glory and honor of God. Things that make us one, things that make us worshipers, things that make us servants things that keep us faithful. Amen? Amen. Amen. There's so much negativity, so much dissension and division. Let's learn to find the things that we have in common. I love what the Lord said to the church. Strengthen the things that remain, which are about to die. Let's learn to strengthen what we have in common. Strengthen what we know to be true. Strengthen what we know to be essential. Uh, there are a lot of things that we can discuss about and have in-house debates, but there are some essentials that should be a part of our core. It should be a part of our biblical lexicon. It should be a part of our DNA as believers that are not up for debate, that are not up for division. So if you, if you look at the book of Revelation, and I'm trying my best with the help of the Lord to just simplify this book, to take it out of the realm of mystery, out of the realm of apocrypha, apocrypha or Armageddon or death and destruction. I'm trying to make the book enjoyable, enjoying revelation, enjoying God's word, enjoying learning and growing and, and, and becoming worshipers of him. And Revelation 119 gives us this amazing built-in outline of what the book is about. 
Revelation 1.19 says, Therefore, this is the Lord right, telling, instructing John what to write through the angel of the Lord. Write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. That's our marching. Those are our marching orders for Revelation. That's our outline. That's our syllabus, as it were. The things which you've seen, that is the past, the things which are, that's the present, and the things which will take place after these things, that's the future. Mm -hmm. So here's where we are. Chapter one of Revelation was the past. Chapters two and three of Revelation was the present as it related to John in the AD 95, AD 100 around the first century and the things which are the future start at chapter four. We have this great throne room scene in heaven. And uh, we believe as I understand scripture that the church is removed from the earth sometime between the third and fourth chapter could be in the, sometime during the fourth or fifth chapter, but sometime in that framework of three, four, and five of Revelation, the church is somewhere in this time frame raptured, or the word is hapazios in the Greek, caught up, snatched away, taken out of the earth. And um, that occurs somewhere around the third or fourth chapter before the scene moves from the heavenly throne room back down to earth and the Lord's judgments begin in chapter 6. Chapter 6 through 18 describes what is known as the Great Tribulation or the Tribulation Period. Chapters 19 describe what is known as the Millennial Reign or the 1,000-year Reign of Christ and the church on the earth. Chapters 20 starts to talk about the final destruction and disposition of the devil and his angels and those that are the enemies of God. And chapters 21 and 22 mm. talk about the end times and our yes. great rejoicing yes. as we spend eternity with God and paradise is restored and we become part of that heavenly expression of eternity with God and all the saints are there, even those that died during the tribulation period. So boy, what a great, future we have. So I thought about this in the a easier way to explain this tribulation period, which is known in Daniel nine as the 70th week of Daniel. And we get this period of time that, that is discussed in Ezekiel and in Daniel's chapter six through 12, especially chapter nine, we get this period called the tribulation period. So I thought I would address it this way to teach you what I believe the word is saying, the who, what, when, where, how, and why of the tribulation period, okay? Let's start with the what. The tribulation period is this seven-year period that takes place in Revelation between chapters 6 and 18. When? It occurs sometime between the rapture of the church, as I understand it, and the second coming of Christ. The rapture of the church somewhere around Revelation chapter 4, the second coming of Christ when he comes back to establish his millennial reign with the saints, with us in chapters 19. Where is the tribulation period going to take place? 
the entire earth is in play according to the word of God. The next question you may want to ask is why? Why is there, Pastor Will, why do we need a tribulation period? What's the purpose of these, these trumpets and these seals and these bowls and these plagues and these judgments and this wrath of God, this anger, this destruction, this death. Why, why, Pastor Will, are we are we going through this? Why do we have what the scripture says and uh, and is the 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 seven seals and the Antichrist and this great warfare that goes on in Revelation chapter six and the the great worldwide famine in chapter six five and six and the plagues. In chapter 7 and 8, and the martyrdom of believers in Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, and this devastating earthquake and the astronomical upheaval of the world as it discussed in Revelation 6, 12 through 14, so much so that things get so bad on earth that the Bible says those who survive the six seals being unleashed, the Bible says they will cry out, fall on us and hide us from the face of of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand as in revelation chapter six verses 16 and 17 it's going to get so bad that people are going to cry out for death and death will be unobtainable uh, by those means then the seventh seal is going to be unleashed in chapter eight and there will be fire that in hell that will destroy much of the plant life in the world. And then there's going to be this death march of the world's, uh, or, or there's going to be death in terms of the world's aquatic life. That is those animals and fish that live in the sea in Revelation 8 and verses uh, 8 through 11. Uh, there's going to be a darkening of the sun and, and the moon in Revelation 19 and a, a, a demonic, a plague of demonic locusts that's going to attack the earth and torture uh, people in Revelation 9, 1 through 11. And there's going to be a demonic army that's going to kill a third of all humanity, according to Revelation 12, uh, chapters 9, 12 through 21. So you may say, Pastor Will, why all of this death and destruction and misery and upheaval on the earth? I thought God was a God of love and kindness and mercy, and compassion, and peace, and gentleness. Where, where is that God? Well, I'll tell you why I think the Bible says this is going to happen. In chapters, Revelation chapter 16, verses 5 through 7, please turn to it. If you want to know why the great tribulation is going to come, why I believe that it is still a future event for we who are on earth now. Here's what Revelation chapter 16 verse 5 says. And you're going to, I pray you're going to get an amazing understanding of this book. Hopefully that you haven't had before. If you've had before, then may this serve as a review. May, may, may these teachings reinforce what you've already learned so that we can not only learn it mentally, cerebrally but that we can also practice it and it turns words into deeds here's what revelation chapter 16 verse 5 says regarding why god is going to do this i'm reading from the new living translation verse 5 says from revelation 16 and i heard the angel who had the authority over all waters saying 
you are just, O Holy One, who is and who always was, because you have sent these judgments. Let me read that again. And I heard the angel have the authority over all water say, you are just, O Holy One, who is and who always was because you have sent these judgments. What judgments? These plagues, the seals, the bowls, the trumpets. The Lord has sent these judgments in Revelations chapter, in Revelation chapter 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, all the way up to 18. He sent them because he is just and holy. The next verse says, verse 6, since they shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets, you have given them blood to drink. It is their just reward. Wow. I'm sorry. These are not my words. These are God's words. These are God's words. The Lord's judgment may seem harsh. His wrath may seem cruel, but it is, it is not without unparalleled mercy and patience and tolerance mm -hmm. and grace yes. and compassion that he has given us so much time to repent, yeah. so much time to return, so much time to ask for forgiveness, yeah. so much time to confess so much time to come humbly to the throne of grace asking God for mercy he has given us so much time that God just one day is going to finally say enough is enough is enough as a holy God his demands must be satisfied as a perfect and just God his laws must be accounted for as a God of grace and mercy and compassion. He must be avenged because he is holy because he is just. He must do these things. Not my words. God's words. The great tribulation is part of God's justice system. It's a part of his mechanism of love and mercy that wrong is adjudicated. The, the reason for the tribulation period is that God have to, has to exercise his justice throughout the earth because God is a holy God and his holiness demands that there is compensation, that there is payment for sin and payment for transgression. He says in verse seven of revelation 16, and I heard a voice from the altar saying, yes, O Lord God, the almighty, your judgments are true and just. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. See, some, sometimes we think, that sin goes unnoticed. Sometimes we think that because we got by, that we got away. Right. 
but God demands justice, he says, because he is true and just. Uh, there's this great passage in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 11. Just make a note of it. You don't have to turn to it. I'll read it because I quote it often. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. See, that's the thing. Because God doesn't just snap us up right then and check us and spank us. Sometimes we think we've gotten away or we somehow condone what we're doing and we keep doing it. The Bible says in verse 12, Ecclesiastes 8, that although a sinner does evil a hundred times and may lengthen his life, still I know that it will be well for those who fear God, who fear him openly. But it will not be well for the evil man and he will not lengthen his days like a shadow because he does not fear God. In other words, Pastor Will, in other words, what I'm learning from the word is that God will execute his judgment. There will come a reckoning day. There will be a time where God says, that's it. My judgment, my true justice, my holiness has to be accounted for. I love what Paul wrote in Romans chapter two, verse five. Paul said, but because of your stubbornness and unrepented heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. That's what Paul wrote in Romans chapter two, verse five. And I looked up the word wrath as it relates to these seals and these bowls and these trumpets that's going to be poured out over the earth during this great tribulation period between Revelations, Revelation chapter 6 through 18. Those chapters included there. And the word wrath is defined as, as anger or indignation, vexation or irritation. Um, uh, God's wrath, however, is always holy. God's wrath is always justified. God's wrath is not spurious. It's not, it's, it's not sporadic. It's, it's, it's not impulsive. God doesn't react to us emotionally. Thank God he's not like us. <laughs> when we get mad, we're ready to call down hellfire and brimstone. <laughs> Remember, remember when Peter, when they were being approached in the Garden of Gethsemane and they were apprehending Jesus, and Peter took out his sword and cut off the ear of Malchus, one of the soldiers. And, and Jesus said, put away your, your sword. Don't you know if I wanted to, I could call down a legion of angels that would be here to, to, to defend me and represent me? You know, our, our vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. It's not up for us to execute our pound of flesh. It's not up for us to adjudicate all of our misdeeds and, and all of the ill will toward us. It's not our, it's not our right to try to be judge, jury, and executioner every time we're offended or every time we're mistreated. Christians need to grow some thicker skin. We're too soft. We're too irritated. We're too temperamental we're too easily offended our sensitivities are way way too high grow up let's grow up 
Let's grow up. I'm serious. Christians get so touchy and feely and sensitive about everything. Someone says one thing about us and we're ready to declare World War III. Let's get over it. They talked about Jesus. Anybody ready to say you're as good as he was? They called him Beelzebub. Anybody ready to say that we're better than Jesus was? They talked about him and criticized him. They spat on him. They slapped him. They called him out of his name. They talked about his family and his background. Even his own family thought he was a lunatic. Are any of us as good as Jesus was where we are above reproach and above criticism? If you are, please don't stand up. <laughs> because we aren't. We're always talking about our feelings and how offended we are. Like we are somebody that have a right to be respected and honored all of the time. It's just pride. We are nothing more than God has made us. Be humble, show humility, show grace and tolerance and compassion. Amen? Amen. Really? Come on. I don't normally talk like this, but I just thought it was appropriate after reading this in Romans and, and, and reading this in Revelation and Ecclesiastes that we need to get our feelings off of our sleeves and toughen up. There are more important things than our, than our sensitivities, than our feelings, than our egos. Amen? Yes. Really? I know it may not be the most spiritual thing I can talk about, but those are things that we need to keep in mind as Christians, as mature Christians. We need to grow up and learn some of the common graces like showing up on time to church, to work, to school, like being polite and kind to people like waiters and servants and stewards and valets and people that 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 serve in the service industries showing Christian courtesy and politeness and kindness and patience and tolerance and tipping waiters and waitresses the way we should. I learned, I learned these things from my mother. She taught us how to treat people that serve with respect. You give a tip whether you got good service or not. I know some of you may say, well, that sends the wrong message and you're rewarding incompetence and you're rewarding poor stewardship. But you know what? Sometimes it says, I know what you did, but I'm going to reward you anyway in spite of you, not because of you, but in spite of you. Did I mention being on time? <laughs> did I mention being faithful? Did I mention being prepared, being consistent, showing up at work, ready to go, ready to do our jobs? not taking advantage of our breaks or our lunch periods, not taking advantage of our coworkers or our supervisors. There are so many practical ways we can let our light shine that have nothing to do with the things that we call spiritual. We think that just jumping and shouting checks all the boxes. But how about being prepared and being punctual and being polite and being faithful and being consistent and being merciful and kind when we're mistreated and praying for those who despitefully use us and being peacemakers and being people that look for ways to serve and to help. These are all spiritual qualities.
Wow. Talking about going down a rabbit hole. I'm sorry. It's not in my notes, but it's certainly in my heart. I, I believe, as far as I understand, that according to the word of God, that the church is going to be raptured sometime during this interval, sometime between chapters three and six. I think the church, I think that the church is out of here. And I base that on a couple things. Number one, I love what it says in, 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 um, in Revelation uh, chapter three. It says, verse 10, because you have kept my word and patience, and patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world. I said the tribulation period is going to be on the whole world. Uh, there's another passage in 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 10, that says, And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivers us from the wrath to come. That's 1 Thessalonians 1, 10. I don't believe the church will be present during this wrath of God, during this period of judgment on the earth, at least not those that were ready when Jesus comes for the rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15. I believe they will be caught out of here and taken out of here. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, the King James Version says, for God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. That same verse in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 in the English Standard Version says, for God has not destined us for wrath. I will keep you from the hour of trial. Yes, thank you, Lord. I love what it says in John 16, 33. It says, these things I have spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In the world, you're going to have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. We're going to have tribulation. We're just not going to have the tribulation. The tribulation period is a specific time in human history where God will unleash his wrath upon the whole earth. And from what I can understand, According to the word of God, the church will not be present. There will be conversions taking place during the tribulation period. There will be ministry going on with 144,000. There will be saints that will be converted during the tribulation period, some of which, perhaps many of which, will be martyred during that seven-year period. But I believe in this, this concept of addition by subtraction. What I mean by that is, because there is no mention of the church between chapters 6 and chapter 18. There is no mention of the term church there. It's mentioned literally 18 times. The term church is mentioned 18 times between Revelation chapter 1 and chapter 3 but not mentioned at all for the rest of the book, uh, unless you want to include the time in chapter 19 where the term bride is mentioned as it refers to the bride of Christ in, in Revelation chapter 19. But the church is in heaven, I believe. The church is rejoicing and worshiping God. And part of that great heavenly chorus that we read about in chapter four and chapter five, and that we'll read about more so in chapter 19 and 20 and 21 and 22. That's where I believe the church 
is present at that time. And you know what? There's, there's this, this thing, and I'm not going to be much longer. I'm, I'm wrapping it up. There's this concept. There's this concept that um, there, there are multiple views, what's called, of the, uh, of the end times as it relates to the millennial. There's pre-millennials, a-millennials, post-millennials, historical tribulation uh, period people, pre-trib, mid-trib, uh, post-trib. There's, there's various schools of thought as it relates to the church's disposition during the time of the tribulation period. And I'm not going to get into all of them because this is not a comparative religion study. This is not a study of contrasting views and thoughts. That's something that we can get into off air or in, in a different format. But this is a teaching session and I am sharing with you my best understanding of what scripture has says. And I believe that the church is raptured according to the word of God prior to the great tribulation period. And I believe that first Thessalonians tells us in this sequential order, number one, for the Lord himself, first Thessalonians 4, 16 shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice yes, yes. of the archangel and with the trump of God. And that, by the way, that, that same passage is echoed in first Corinthians 1552. So I think that the Lord is going to descend, as it says, from heaven with a shout. And this is to me the first of three or four sequential events in the rapture of the church. The Lord descends with a shout. And you know what? I looked up that word shout, I don't know, a couple years ago. It's it's kalisma in the Greek. K-E-L-E-U-S-M-A. And it's the same as a military command or shout. It's a loud call to attention. It has a, a military ring to it, as it were, like a commander rallying his trip troops and calling them to warfare and a battle cry. And, and it's this, by the way, it's the it's the same word. Listen, you're gonna like this. It's the same word that Jesus used in John 11 when he called Lazarus forth from the dead. The Bible says, uh, and, I, and I believe that the terminology is cried out with a loud voice over in John 11, 43. Jesus says, Lazarus, and I just met a, a shout, Lazarus, come forth. And I could just see the Lord with this great trumpeting voice, this great shout yes. that the Lord comes with a great, yes. we don't know what yes. word he's going to say or words he's going to oh, say, yeah. but we know it's going to be a shout, such a loud, vibrating, resonating shout that not only are we that are alive, that we may that are alive going to hear, but the Bible says that the dead in Christ shall rise first. This is going to be a shout that's going to even wake up dead folk. <laughs> you know, you know that has to be loud if dead folk going to hear it. People that are deaf and mute are going to hear it. People without understanding of languages are going to hear it because this voice is going to be such a commanding cry, such a commanding shout, yeah, such yeah. a powerful trumpet, such a powerful voice of awakening that the dead.
dead, the Bible says, shall rise first. Settle down, Will. Settle down. Settle down. Verse 16 says, for the Lord himself shall descend with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. The Bible says in John chapter 5, verse 28, marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice. You see, I'm not making this up. I'm not letting my excitement, my emotion, I'm not letting my energy and enthusiasm overtake my, my commitment to accuracy of his word. The Bible says that all that are in the graves are going to hear his voice. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, oh, grave, where is your sting? Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15. Yes. And then living after the dead rise, the Bible says, and I don't know what the time differential is, that the living are going to be raptured, caught up. Uh, that, that, is, that, that word harpazo in the Greek H-A-R-P-A-Z-O for rapture. I know the, the technically, I know technically the term, specific term, R-A-P-T-U-R-E, is nowhere found in scripture. I get it. This is just a shortcut, an icon, as it were. We're saying rapture to 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 shortcut saying the word caught up or the phrase caught up or snatched away or or, or, or basically a snatched. The word means caught up in the Greek. It refers to a strong, irresistible, even violent act of catching away, pulling away. Woo! <laughs> That's exciting, guys. I'm sorry. I, I, I know I may be going on a little bit of a tangent talking about this. I'm wrapping up the sermon. This is part of my sermon. But I, but I think you need to know we throw these terms around all the time. And unless you're from a strong church background that taught biblical doctrine accurately and passionately from a child, you may not be familiar with some of these terms, this quote unquote churchiosity that we kick around all the time. But the rapture is a real event. It's, it's basis, it's, it's foundation, is rooted and 1 Corinthians 15, and John, St. John 14, and, and uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, and Revelation, we, we see these examples. Acts 8.39 talks about a snatching away of Philip after he ministered to the Ethiopian eunuch. That same phrase is there where he was caught up, he was snatched away. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 12.2, uh, and verse four describes Paul being caught up into the third heaven, raptured, snatched away, basically brought out, brought away from the earth by God's divine, uh, the God's divine power. And and Philippians uh, chapter three, verse twenty one, talks about us being changed and converted into our glorified 
bodies did this 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 change that takes place here's what it says in verse 20 of, of philippians chapter 3 but we are citizens of heaven where the lord jesus christ lives by the way let me let me let me just say this let me just say this really quickly because i'm coming up on the end I, i'm i'm almost done let, let me just say this because this is important we don't talk enough about the rapture we don't talk enough about heaven we don't talk enough about eternal life we don't talk enough about our eternal state. We don't talk enough about end times. We don't talk enough about being with God forever in our glorified bodies, in a state of, of, of paradise, in a, in a new heaven and a new earth. We don't discuss this enough, which to me is counterintuitive because why did we get saved? We got saved because we didn't want to be lost. We got saved because we didn't want to go to hell. We got saved because we didn't want to incur God's wrath and eternal judgment. We got saved because we wanted to be with Jesus. We got saved because we wanted to see loved ones again in the afterlife, after the grave, life after death. We got saved because we wanted eternal life. The very thing we got saved for, we almost treat as taboo and never discuss it because who wants to talk about heaven? Because that means you got to discuss death. Well, guess what? It was appointed unto man once to die. We, we're going to have to go, most of us, through the grave. Some will be present, no doubt, when the Lord returns and will be caught away, according to 1 Thessalonians 4. But let me just say this. We should be talking about it because Paul said in his writings that we should encourage ourselves yes. with this message of eternity, this message of being with the Lord, this message of having a new body, a glorified body, free of pain, arthritis, sickness, cancer, diabetes, obesity, death, high blood pressure, uh, physical issues, uh, all, all the things that rack and ravage and destroy and decay this body. But God says we are going to be changed. We are going to be completely transformed. The Greek word is metamorphi, which suggests a, com a, a complete alteration, a change of state, a change of composition, a change of disposition. God's going to give us a new body, a glorified body, and we should be excited yes, about this. Yes, yes, Hallelujah. Oh boy. I, I'm, yes. I'm, I'm going to just say Thank this. I'm going to just say this as we wrap it up. First Corinthians 15 51 says, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. This mortal will put on immortality. I'll go back to what I was reading about Philippians 3.20, that we're citizens of heaven. This, this earth is not our home. We're sojourners. We're pilgrims. We are passing through. We're not to be digging in deep and like we're here forever. This is not how the story ends. This is a phase in our transition to go from physical to spiritual, to go from death to life, to go from decay following the second law of thermodynamics where everything is in decline, everything is in descent. We are moving from that to a point of 
maturity where we become glorified, where we become Christ-like, where we take on a body that will be both material and immaterial at the same time, where we can do the things that Jesus did. I love what it says in 1 John. It says, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore, the world knoweth us not, because it knew him now. But listen to this part. I love this. Beloved, I love this. Beloved, now, N-O-W, now are we the sons of God. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be, the King James Version says. I love this. We don't know, we don't know exactly all of the details and the intricacies. We don't know, understand the architecture or the composition of how these bodies work or exactly how they will form and, and how they will function. But, but what we do know is what John tells us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But we know that when he shall appear, he, Jesus, when he shall appear, when he shall appear in the clouds, in the air, when he comes back for us, the Bible says that we shall be like him, whatever he is, we will be. Whatever form he has, we will take. We will become. The Bible says we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that have this hope in him purifies himself yes. even as he is pure. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. See, that's what I'm talking Hallelujah. about. Hallelujah. That's, that's, that's what I'm looking oh, forward to. I love how he says in conclusion in Philippians 3.21, he says, he will take our weak mortal bodies and change them into glorious bodies like his own, using the same power with which he will bring everything under his control. By the way, that's Philippians 3.21. He's saying he's going to take these weak mortal bodies and change them into immortal glorified bodies a body that is able to eat a fish sandwich beside the lakeshore and then walk through a wall and materialize on the other side without decomposing. <laughs> now that is, <laughs> hey, hey, I didn't say it. I didn't write it. That's the word of God. Yes. That's a cold-blooded body. Yes, yes, that is yes. the ultimate body because the Lord knows I love me some fish. Matter <laughs> of fact, I might be going to Red Lobster right after service thinking about it. I love me some fish and I'm just so happy that I'm going to be able to eat fish and then materialize from Chicago to LA in the twinkle of an eye. <laughs> I don't know the specifics, but I know it's going to be great because the Bible says, I have not seen nor ear have heard nor have it entered into the heart of man what God has in store yes, for those that love yes. it. So you know what? I am just thankful. I am just thankful for what God has prepared for us. Yes. And, and let me just leave you with this. The, Lord's, the Lord just gave us kind of a little, a little teaser. He gave us a little teaser in three of the uh, four Gospels, in the three synoptic Gospels, in Matthew chapter 17, Mark chapter 9, and Luke chapter 9. The Lord gave us this little preview, as it were, a movie teaser, just to whet our appetite. What he did 
in Matthew 17 and in Mark 9 and Luke 9, he showed Peter, James, and John this thing called the transfiguration. And a transfiguration is a simile, a insight, a glimpse of what the rapture is going to be. The Lord took Peter, James, and John, kind of like his inner circle of the inner circle, this inner sanctum of guys, and he took them up on what might have been Mount Hebron, but we call it the Mount of Transfiguration because it's where Jesus, watch this, it's where Jesus sort of dematerialized right in front of them, and he transfigured, and he started or was invited to or called, as it were, a conversation between two other men. And listen to this. It's not it's important that you know exactly who these guys were. You can look it up if you want to in Matthew 17. I'm just going to shortcut it for the sake of time. And Luke 9 and, Matthew, and Mark 9. What it was was Elijah with a J and Moses were in conversation with Jesus. Who knows what they discussed? I don't even know if Peter, James, and John had privy to eavesdrop on that conversation. But this conversation took place and they were forbidden to write about it or talk about it until after the Lord's ascension. He gave them those instructions. But listen, here's what I think is significant about this encounter. Number one, Moses had died and had been buried some 1,500 years ago. 1,500 years before Jesus, somewhere in the desert of Moab, God buried Moses 1,500 years ago. Elijah, with a J, had been translated or raptured, as it were, about 900 years before this incident in Matthew 17. Mark 9 repeats it, and Luke 9 repeats it again. All three synoptic writers adding additional details to the account. Here's what's interesting. Moses represented the law. He represented the patriarchs, representing that period of time where God governed his people under the Mosaic law. Elijah represented the prophets. He was known as somewhat known as the greatest of all the prophets because of the powerful works and miracles that he did. But look at these two guys. These two guys represent the Old Testament saints, the patriarchs and the prophets, the law and the prophets. Moses was dead and was resurrected. Elijah was alive and was raptured. It's a, it's a synopsis, as it were, of what's going to take place when the yes. Lord returns. Yeah. It's a miniature synopsis of the rapture. The dead in Christ, represented there by Moses, and he was alive, Elijah raptured in the chariot of fire, and they both are there competing with Jesus, maybe talking about, who knows, maybe the conversation went something like this. Moses, pretty soon, I'm going to rapture some more saints, and you're going to be with some more saints that are going to get up out of the grave. And by the way, Elijah, I'm getting ready to rapture some more saints that are going to be living the way you were when you were caught up. 
And I just believe, I don't know if that was a conversation, but I'm just excited that God gave us this little yes, microcosm yes, yes. of the Lord's return of a dead man coming up and a live man coming up and all of them standing there talking to Jesus. Peter got so excited about it. He said, Lord, I just think we ought to erect three tabernacles here. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And then the Lord came out of the cloud. God the Father said, whoa, whoa, whoa. This is my beloved son. Hear ye him. In other words, stop talking. Because you're just making a mess of things. God don't need no shrines. He don't need no temples being erected. He don't need no statutes or no memorials being erected. You just listen to what he says. And that's all you need to do right now. And I thank God that we are listening to his word through his word, learning his word, loving his word, and trying our best to live his word. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. Amen. The Monday morning moment before I pray, the Monday morning moment is simply this. Will you be ready when Jesus comes? Will you be ready when Jesus comes? Lord, we thank you for your word. We ask that it transforms us. We ask, Lord, that your word is is transformative in our lives, that it causes us to be instructed to behavior that honors you, that these lessons on revelation will inform our conduct and our behavior, that we'll be ready for your coming whenever it is. Even if we have to endure, Lord, a a part of the tribulation or all of it, whatever, if we're wrong about understanding your divine timeline. As my mother used to tell us, Lord, our day may come any day. It's not about necessarily when you come, Lord, but when we leave. So Lord, help us to live in a state of readiness, a state of preparation every day, knowing that any day could be our last day, that any day could be our final day, that any breath could be our last breath. Let us live with a sense of urgency, a sense of expectancy, a sense of readiness that whenever you take us out or whenever you come back, whenever that is in your time frame, that we will be ready, that we will be holy, be holy as I am holy, that we will be ready, Lord, when you come. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. God bless you.